Welcome to the Radical Departures podcast, your source for startup storytelling. We're your hosts, Abby and Chris. You'll hear informative discussions full of valuable expertise and actionable insight on the issues you face when launching and growing your startup. This is episode 16 of the Radical Departures podcast. Our guest today is Ethan Pierce, venture partner at Stealth Venture Fund, author of the book Chief Startup Officer, founding partner of Borderless Ventures, and all-around startup champion. Ethan speaks at tech events around the globe and talks startups and innovation frequently on French TV. Originally from the U.S., Ethan has lived in France for many years and spends a good chunk of his time in Southeast Asia as well. In this episode, Ethan tells us about his new endeavor, Stealth Venture Fund, shares insight about what France's strengths are in the innovation and startup world, and so much more. So without further ado, here's episode 16 with Ethan Pierce. So, Ethan Pierce, I am founder of something called Borderless Ventures. I'm also a venture partner at a new uh, fund being launched in the Valley that will be around uh, artificial intelligence and uh, industry 4.0 technologies. So a little bit of background. So an electrical engineer um, from the 90s, uh, spent about 20 years doing digital marketing strategy, actually. So I um, didn't really do the engineering side of things uh, as, as a job. Uh, ended up doing, you know, that took me into tech, but but ended up Tech was more about at that point in terms of startups, figuring out how to get people to use your website, you know, kind of startup, you know, whatever type of thing. And at that point, digital marketing in 1996 was, you know, you had a website and then you had email where you spammed everyone. But it wasn't spam because they were so happy to get an email. <laughs> and then you just started adding on skills. And so since about 96, I've been uh, doing different things around digital marketing. I uh, worked for a couple startups in Boston. Then I moved to Atlanta, where I helped build the first internet business and digital marketing program at Georgia State. And that turned into a lot of corporate training because the corporates were coming in and wanting, you know, they saw the program and they also wanted to learn for their employees. So ended up, I was teaching their employees. Corporate training is a funny thing because usually you teach the employees of a large corporation a subject they want to know about. And then they come back to you and you're like, okay, the employees loved it, but they told us, you know, you know it so well, you should, we should just hire you to, you know, to consult for us on it. So the corporate training turned into corporate consulting. And so I, I, I kind of did the whole run the past 20 years or so of digital marketing strategy for, you know, small businesses to, to plenty of Fortune 500s in terms of banks and commerce websites and big companies. And in the midst of that, you know, the early 2000s started. Uh, so I had a, a digital agency in the U.S., had a, uh, an e-commerce company, uh, sold those, moved to France in 2005. And for various reasons, uh, ended up in, you know, staying. And this was this was before all the amazing things that are, you know, are happening now. Um, it was at the very beginning of, I think, France's uh, kind of birth into being uh, this amazing place for technology. So there was, there were so many different things uh, and interesting things to be able to do. So ended up starting a similar e-commerce company and had another digital agency and did various different things in France, kind of pursuant to that, till about 2013, I'd sold off the e-commerce company and it kind of ended up, uh, what's the next kind of thing? At that point in time, it was still, you know, there were only a few Americans in the technology scene in, in France in general. So started getting startups asking, you know, can you help connect us? both for business development opportunities, but more importantly for funding uh, with your network in the U.S. This opportunity presented itself to become the bridge between the U.S. and France. So for about the past um, four years, I've really been 
investing a lot in helping French startups get access to U.S. capital and also U.S. Uh, corporate business development for B2B and B2B2C uh, type companies. That led me to three years ago getting uh, asked by uh, Nest Ventures, which is a leading uh, early stage investor and, and ecosystem kind of builder in Hong Kong. I've run several dozen accelerators and innovation programs with the, all the large corporates across Southeast Asia. Was asked to kind of come on board and, and help build that out in Europe. So I joined as, as managing partner for Nest. Uh, and in the process, because we were scaling so significantly in Southeast Asia, ended up also running uh, the Singapore office since kind of splitting my time in between uh, Paris and Singapore, which led to this bridge of France to the U.S. becoming also France to Southeast Asia, because there are 22,000 French people in Hong Kong and 18,000 in Singapore, which may not sound like a lot, but it makes the second largest expat group in both countries. And also very important because, you know, Singapore is 5 million people. But when you look at the people who are actually in business and in tech, you're only dealing with maybe, you know, a couple hundred thousand at most. And most of these 18,000 people are in that sector. So it ended up being that the French thing was incredibly valuable also in Southeast Asia. So this access to capital for French startups uh, in the U.S., but also now in Southeast Asia and also the corporate business development and what that represents as well. And then now going in the other direction of Southeast Asia and more and more American companies that are looking at what the opportunities are in France um, or in Europe through France. So that's kind of what's taken me to this space of, of doing these things. So today I really have two main activities, uh, Borderless, which is my cross-border activity of, of helping startups and corporations and investors access opportunity between the U.S., France, and Singapore. So but Western Europe and Southeast Asia as, as the idea. And the second being this new fund uh, that, that we're launching that is $150 million target. Uh, it's based in Palo Alto, uh, focused on artificial intelligence and all the industry 4.0 kind of deep tech technologies, advanced manufacturing, additive manufacturing, uh, augmented reality, synthetic biology, industrial IoT, all these fun subjects, because this is where a, a lot of that great stuff is one of the questions I'm sure we'll have why. Right. But that's uh, what I'm focusing on is, is getting uh, investors into the fund and then soon working on those startups. Because this fund is, is very unique in the idea that it is an American fund but it is 100% to be deployed into startups in Europe, in Israel, and in Southeast Asia. So this is not a fund to scale U.S. startups. It's a fund to scale startups in these other regions. So many things in parallel. I think you've got this amazing kind of machine uh, of the French tech that started with Fleur Pellerin and then Axel Lemaire and now with, with Munir Amadjoubi uh, under Macron's government, just creating positivity around entrepreneurship. So I think that, you know, creating visibility about French companies and entrepreneurship outside of France, showcasing the fact that France is actually a, a, an incredibly interesting market and creating now the conditions uh, to want to build a company in France. I think that's that's a piece of, of, of how things have shifted massively. I think another one is simply that a, a 22-year-old college student seven, eight years ago, in my opinion, their English was not nearly what it is today. In terms of entrepreneurship, it's even in the U.S., you, entrepreneurship in general is not taught very well at business schools. It can be, but but not always. And it's the same thing in France. They're awakening to the idea that entrepreneurship needs to be a part of business programs here. But what's interesting is, is that the 22-year-old now in France has been reading English books, listening to We Start, you know, uh, reading tech at TechCrunch, um, going to things like Web Summit. So now they're getting a lot more English influences. They're getting um, a business education in parallel to their school business education that's coming from other resources. 
those resources coming with a, a Silicon Valley kind of mindset. I think that is driving change in the workforce or the potential entrepreneurial, you know, kind of group of France to where you've got that, you've got you know, the deep tech stuff that we can talk about a little bit later. You've got all these things in parallel that that are creating a critical mass as to why things are booming right now in France. It's not really any one particular thing. It's all it's the fact that all these things are arriving at the same time. But I do think it's it's very fair to say that there are definitely people who have been pushing to create that through French tech. Also, quite a few wonderful French entrepreneurs that have been, you know, yelling at everybody they could see for quite a while that, you know, France is an amazing place and there's really cool things. I think you've got great media in France with some very strong advocates, you know, uh, Richard Minneveau with, with French Web. I think Liam with Rude Baguette. Uh, these were people who were telling everybody they could around the world. Uh, France is pretty cool. You've got Xavier Niel, who, who, who way before things got visible in France with 42 and, and Station F and Kima Ventures was still telling everybody in Silicon Valley that he could, you know, France is the place where lots of good stuff is happening. So you've got all these ambassadors that have been out there already driving interest, but now it's reaching a critical mass and people are getting interested because value is being created. You've, you're getting blah, blah, car, you know, with a above, you know, billion valuation or, or you're getting a, you know, Critio and, and, and you're seeing companies like Algolia coming up that are these fantastic technology companies that are that have French DNA but are international, but they just happen to be here, and that is causing people to want to be interested in what's going on and want to know more. All those things at the same time. That's how this has just really shifted. But now it's it's really funny since about um, about a year there's been this shift where people are kind of like, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur, and they say it with pride. There should be a pride factor of realizing that something is French in, in its DNA. But the reality is, is this is a global game. And so it's very important that you escape. It doesn't matter. It's not just about being French. It's, you know, whether it's an Israeli startup or a Singaporean startup or a Ukrainian startup. Once you cross that border and you want to matter and be relevant and scale on a global level, you just have to be best in class. And, and you need to lose, you know, the identity that you're from somewhere, not because you're not proud of it, but because it's a side story. What matters is, are you the best at what you do? And are you scaling that to be a fantastic company, both for your potential clients who want to know that they're they're dealing with the best solution they can find, but also your your, your investors uh, or potential investors who want to know that they're backing um, the best thing out there. The one thing I would say, however, about the slight problem with it being, it's great now that entrepreneurship is something to be proud about and be excited about. My only issue that I'm seeing is it's also becoming cool in a way that while that is good, you do not play at startups. This is business, and we are about making and scaling real companies. And so one of the things that does, that I have seen, is that that people getting great educations in France and elsewhere, but right now it's, it's, it's something I'm seeing a lot in France. They've got a great education, and they're like, I want to, you know, I'm going to do a startup. You know, it's cool. You know, it's a, the offices are fantastic. We go to these cool events. There's free beer on Fridays. I don't have to wear a suit, you know, whatever. And I hear all these things, and I'm like, yeah, that's kind of the fun side of what comes from doing what we do, but it's not what we do. So now we've fixed the problem of, uh, okay, entrepreneurship is, is a good thing. That has been fixed. Now we have to make sure that people realize it's not, however, a party. It is work. It's, it's business. And we're here to create real value. We're here to create something that, you know, it's not about being a capitalist per se, but my issue is, is when I hear somebody say, yeah, but you don't want to make money or something, money might, well, you want to change the world or you want to you want to hire lots of employees or you want to do whatever it is that you're wanting the outcome of this thing you're building to do that only happens if it becomes a successful business. So you don't have to go buy the yacht. 
This thing you're building has to make money in order for that to have that resource to spend on the things that make that successful, more quality people and all the different uh, tools and resources that need to be paid for in order to build a company. And so I think that that's the only thing that worries me there is this kind of play attitude that, that I also see around the ecosystem uh, in some ways. And we have to be careful to address that, you know, and, and that can be sometimes it's just a, a small realignment. Sometimes it's something as simple as, as, as taking those kind of startups to CES or Web Summit um, and having them go, this is even cooler than what I thought. But it's real business in the sense of these people are building great companies and they've actually scaled something. And this was hard work, but it's created tremendous value. So I think for me, that's that's the it's just important to see that. I think it's fantastic that entrepreneur is no longer a dirty word and that, that George Bush and everyone has realized it is, in fact, a French <laughs> word. Um, but I do think it's important to also state that we are in the business of venture building. So the fun is how you deal with the stress of a rather volatile work environment of, you know, a startup is a temporary organization that is trying to figure out a scalable and durable business model. So that is just full of unknowns. It's not a small business. It's not a, a, a consulting agency. This is somebody who's building something that doesn't have any idea about whether or not they can actually build the technology. They don't have any idea about whether or not that technology is actually going to want to be paid for by someone as a client. And there should be product market fit hopefully coming in there as early as possible. But the idea of there are so many unknowns about whether our good ideas and suppositions will turn into reality. That is a stressful, incredibly frustrating, you know, experience, which is why the fun has come into so much of it. Right. But fun is not the actual goal of starting your startup. It's it's a way to deal with the fact that 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 having a startup and building a real company um, is, in fact, a lot of hard work. What do you look for when you're when you you have these startups? I don't know if you engage more with them or if they come to you. But when you're talking with them, what is it that you're looking for? I think that's a question that that uh, I think most most investors or advisors would answer in very similar ways. When you talk about team, you talk about product market fit, you talk about all kinds of things. Uh, I think one of the ways I heard it put that I really liked is that a B kind of grade team will take a excellent idea and turn it into an average company. An A list team can take an average IT idea and turn it into an amazing company. And I think that you do have to care about team. But I also think that it's dangerous to only care about team. You have to have a good idea at some point. If we're talking about investment. Now, if we're talking about just, you know, putting a couple good entrepreneurs together as a great team and, and they will eventually come up with something great, that's fantastic. But if you're looking at a company in front of you that's, you know, a potential investment, if it's a great team that has absolutely no idea what they want to build, I agree that at some point they will probably come up with something really fantastic, but it's hard to invest in the thing that doesn't really have much context or future yet. I think Y Combinator even tried this where they wanted to bring, when they met great people that didn't necessarily have an amazing idea for Y Combinator, but they felt really strong about the people to bring them in so that the Y Combinator process would drive them, you know, as it does into being even better founders uh, around what they do. But uh, you know, Nest has built tons of accelerators and innovation programs in, in Asia. And one of the things that we really learned is that when you're doing a proof of concept or or a pilot type innovation program, like Y Combinator is, it's, it's you know, you, you want to get this thing to the end where you're able to showcase it to the world and have everybody go, that's amazing. I want to invest in that. If in the B2B, B2B to C world, you're doing this kind of proof of concept and pilot idea, you can't 
pivot in the middle of the program. An accelerator is, is three months long, four months long, six months long. If three weeks into a 12-week program, you pivot, then you don't get to actually mature the, the project to the degree that you needed to potentially to get to your goals. And so uh, my, my point with that being is that when you're looking at a potential idea, you're probably drawn in first by the fact that they're addressing a problem in a certain space. Team becomes really important because what, what entrepreneurs don't always realize is, is that if you're, you know, you're pitching me your startup that does food delivery in Paris, it is likely that whenever everybody was doing that last summer, um, in the span of two months, every investor in town probably saw 10 different companies pitch them the same exact deck for the same exact solution. And what founders don't always realize is we're not really waiting on you to explain us that the idea is cool. We're actually trying to figure out whether or not you're the one who's going to scale the idea. Uh, now, if you're onto something really unique, then then that's interesting. But there is really a shortage of original ideas. Uh, most likely, there's there's at any given time, there's two or three other people in the world somewhere that are building pretty much the exact same thing as you. So it's about execution. So there's all kinds of things that matter. So what do you look for? Team is incredibly important because in the end, that's what's going to be the difference between an average company and an amazing company. But before you get there, you have to be working on a problem that is scalable. So startups often are creating solutions looking for a problem, which is a bad, bad way to do this. You need to figure out that there is a problem that exists in the world that needs solved, and then you build a solution for that. But what's important is that problem also has to be a scalable problem. Because if 12 people have the same problem as you and you build an amazing solution for it, that's great. But that's not going to scale unless you can make a million dollars or maybe not even then off each of those 12 people. That doesn't really work. What you need to be thinking about is that the problem you're working on is a shared problem with enough scale that once you figured out the details of what you're going to build, once you build the amazing solution that fits that problem, it can actually go somewhere. Now, there are also lots of great, you know, not everything has to be a unicorn. I think that we get distracted by that, that, that idea. But even to build a, a, a strong, successful, small to medium-sized business type startup, you still need to have an amazing solution that fits a scalable problem, even if the scale is, is less than maybe these enormous uh, opportunity type companies that we see that can deal with my, maybe more global problems um, or solutions. And so, so I think that, you know, this idea that there is a scalable problem that you are, you know, through the product market fit process, and you have created an amazing solution that fits that. And then an A-list team takes that and, and executes on it. There's just lots of little things in there. So people love to talk about team. They love to talk about product market fit. They love to talk about the technology of each of these things. It's very much holistic. I think it depends on the vertical that you're in, you know, fintech or if we're talking, you know, maybe health tech or if we're talking about hardware, if we're talking about specific technologies instead of verticals, whether it's blockchain or AI or, or uh, um, synthetic biology or, you know, whatever these things are that we're looking at, there's it's going to be different what you're what you're looking for. Uh, and so uh, different investors would say different things. But I, I, I think it's very important to understand it's, it has to be holistic. We have to be talking about real opportunity that is executed fantastically by an amazing team. Now, one issue that we've talked about with a number of guests is the French corporate world. To be clear, if we're talking about in corporate business development, this is, a, this is in the B2B and the B2B2C space. So yeah. if you're a B2C startup, it's probably unlikely that corporates can help you yeah. a lot. 
that said, that it's not exactly true. There are some examples that I, I can give to that. But but the real benefit, both for corporates in terms of working with startups, but also for the startups in leveraging that relationship is in the B2B and B2B2C space. At South by uh, Southwest in March, I'll be launching uh, my book, which is called Chief Startup Officer, uh, How Corporates Can Leverage Startup Innovation. Oh, cool. So this is actually a big space for me because uh, with Nest and all of the corporate innovation programs, whether it's design sprints or, or accelerators or, or whatever that might be that we ran, spent a lot of time listening to what corporates want and why they want it. And then the experience of actually seeing how they try and achieve that and, and how that could be difficult to, to make happen in a, in, a, in a very large, complex structure like a, a multinational corporation. I think innovation programs serve a great benefit to educating the corporate internally helping kind of their internal maturity around innovation. And as that matures, they're going to be even more capable to work in productive, efficient ways with startups. So I think I'm not uh, against all of the innovation programs. I think you just have to know the value that you're actually getting out of them. So I think for startups, they need to really understand the corporate that they're going to be working with in that program, especially if it's the first time a startup has worked in the B2B space to understand it's, it takes about 18 months to go from beginning of a conversation to a, a signed paid pilot on average, in a large corporation. So that's a long time, 18 months. It's usually about the runway that a small seed-funded startup has in terms of cash. And so if you put all your eggs in that basket, the reality is it's going to take almost all the money you have, or maybe more, to live to the point where you actually get money from that company, from the, from the large corporation. And vast majority of these cases are positive situations, but they don't necessarily end in a, in a paid pilot, which means you might not actually get a, a paid opportunity out of that anyhow. So I think you do need to be careful about how you approach that. But I, I think that today, I wouldn't make really a big distinction between French corporates and, and corporates elsewhere. I think you find amazing large corporations that get it and that, that want to produce real value both for the corporate and for um, startups, uh, both in France and, and elsewhere. Um, and you find a lot of corporations that, you know, the CEO woke up one day and, and got scared because they read an article in the Wall Street Journal. So they hired somebody to run innovation. Right. And yet that person doesn't really have a mandate to get much done. And that can be very destructive both for the corporate and for the startups because there's nothing really happening. But I think there are plenty of examples of great uh, large corporations that are doing this right. They're really doing um, it. I see a lot more of those people now. You, As the startup founder, you need to be discerning to kind of figure out that who you are potentially working with and that they are not all created equal in terms of the value that you might get out of that. I think that that's a very important uh, thing to understand. But no, I'm very bullish actually on corporate innovation because I think it was Deloitte uh, that said that within about 10 years, uh, half the the Fortune 500 will be dead. When I speak with large corporations about innovation, I actually, before having that conversation, I just said, wow, that's really aggressive. That's a high statistic. And then you have conversations with large corporates and you think you're not even close because, again, there are amazing companies doing this right. But the amount of companies that are basically just wanting to tick off some boxes that saying they're doing innovation. You do not do innovation. You become innovative as a large corporation. And if you're simply trying to do things that look like innovation, most likely you're not going to change the internal culture. Most likely you're not going to of your company. Most likely you're not going to create new amazing ideas. You're not going to empower your teams to take risks and to innovate. I actually think, yeah, we're going to see a tremendous amount of that. And I also just, it's maybe not so much that the large corporations won't innovate. It's the fact that today you're able to see companies that, especially we're going to see with deep tech, but also we're seeing a lot right now around crypto, that we look at at a lot of startups building things on the blockchain that 
we're also just going to see companies that are going to create massive valuations because they're solving big problems, but they're going to solve that with even less resources through AI and machine learning, through the blockchain, through other things. So you're going to have less people making more revenue solving the same problems. That's going to be hard to combat. So I think large corporations, there's just a lot of reflection, self kind of reflection that needs to be done uh, to figure out where they need to go. But I would actually say that the corporate innovation space is getting healthier quickly. It's also seeing it fracturing into two pieces. There's a piece that is getting, that is really just figuring this thing out and becoming amazing at working with startups. And then there's a piece that is just really kind of just playing with it and that has no value. And that's terrible for the corporate because they think that they're working in innovation, but they're not really doing much. And it's really, really bad for the startups because I have seen a lot of startups die because they pick the wrong corporate to work with and it wears them out. So what I think is is important to understand is in the sales process of helping, of getting large corporations to want to do an innovation program through something like uh, when I worked at Nest and, and now through Borderless, the sales process has to be top down, has to be C-suite level. Because if you're not talking to the CEO, not talking to the board in a large corporation, then what you're going to get is you're going to get an innovation team that is not going to be able to transform or push out into business units. But if it comes from the C-suite, then there's a mandate. And what that means is, is that when the innovation manager with this mandate, they have their accelerator. And when that startup needs to speak with somebody specific in the company, they're able to to contact that person with this drive that comes from the C-suite and say that, you know, I know you're really busy. I know this is maybe not on your radar, but this startup needs to have a conversation with you. The program is 12 weeks long, so the conversation needs to be tomorrow and not in three weeks. And that's not a conversation that potentially and up until then has been an easy conversation to have. And it's all about the mandate. If you're coming to that with the CEO behind you, stuff gets done. If you're not coming at it with that way, nothing will happen. And that's where this can start to get off track. There's lots of ways that that becomes complex. But what I think startups need to understand the most, and actually, interestingly enough, corporates don't always know this as well, that most large corporations have procurement guidelines, usually practically a book. These things can be 50 to 200 pages. And they say things like, you need to have $5 million in revenue. You need yeah. to be at least five years old as a company. No single contract can be worth more than 10% of your annual revenue. All of those rules basically mean that this large company cannot legally internally work with anything under a Series B startup because those startups are not old enough. They don't have enough revenue. This contract may be all of their revenue, let alone it being just 10%, whatever those rules happen to be. So what you need in that case is a parallel path to procurement like an accelerator. Somebody who has the mandate to say, I know that these six to 10 companies do not fit our normal way to work with service providers, but because we've put this program in place, because this comes from the very top in the company that we need to make this work, we are going to figure out a way to get through compliance and procurement in a way that ticks the boxes that we have to, especially if it's regulatory like FinTech or insurance tech. We are gonna figure those things out but we're going to do that because we have this innovation program in place. Without innovation initiatives, most large corporations cannot actually work with startups because it does not follow their procurement guidelines. And the 18-month sales cycle, that's a rude awakening whenever you, you know, and again, these people want to make this stuff happen. This is not because they don't want to work with you. This is when they want to work with you. If you're having to fight to get that interest and to get those opportunities, then this could be a very, very, very long process. So, and sometimes it goes much faster and there are companies that are doing really, really cool things in this, but it is not as easy as it may look like whenever you see the accelerator video or the demo day or things like that and think that this thing is going to be a, a miracle. 
it's a lot of hard work, but it potentially has amazing results on the other side. I believe it is the survival of almost every multinational corporation today is completely at the mercy of how seriously they are taking innovation and transformative change. There's a lot of words that get thrown around. And, and, and this is not about the big consultancies, you know, providing you with a big document that says you're being transformational and all this kind of crap. This is about the fact that when you go to Apple or you go to GE or you go to a company like Google, you see people that are, you know, and there are plenty of ways to have a larger discussion and, and argue this, but you see teams that are in general allowed to think out of the box, challenge ideas, potentially destroy existing business models in exchange for a new, better future business model. Because if you don't do it, someone else will, you know, and which really takes me, I guess, to the last point of that, which is very often with corporates, one of the conversations whenever we're having a first conversation around innovation that will come up is this whole disruption thing, we're just not really sure how that really applies to our business. And there's a very simple answer to that. The question of whether or not every multinational in the world is going to be disrupted over the next five years, maybe 10 years, the answer to that is not yes or no in the sense of will it. The answer is whether or not it will be you who self-disrupts or someone else is going to come along and disrupt your company for you. So that's just the survival of every large corporation out there is completely focused today for me on whether or not they take innovation seriously and they figure out how to be internally a different company, not the existing historical business model, but what is coming and how they work with other companies that are building the next wave of cool things, which may be large corporates, but may very also be three people in a co-working space building a company that 18 months from now will take away half your revenue. And there's just things like that that have to be figured out. And I think the big, you have to be open to realizing that a non-corporate, non-experienced, young entrepreneur company can actually build something valuable. And sometimes there's just this arrogance that says that's just not possible. So you have to get past that. But I think, and the bigger piece to me in almost all those situations is being open to self-disruption. That is the biggest piece. We all, we, we, you know, we showcase, we talk about the Kodak moment, you know, always in these kind of things of, you know. Kodak invented the digital uh, photography process and yet put it in a filing cabinet because they didn't want to destroy their film business. Yeah, that worked out well. You just have to be actually perceptive enough to realize that, okay, digital photography is now a thing. Someone else is going to figure this out. So I guess we just need to own that, even though it's going to hurt us. Now, when you're a publicly traded company, you also potentially have financial obligations to your shareholders and things like that, which can make self-disruption difficult. Destroying entire business units there are potentially ways that this gets complicated by taking away that shareholder value if you're taking away your revenue and not ending up creating the new one the way you're supposed to. That gets complex. But my issue there is that, no, no, you have to be open to the fact that whether you do it internally or you bring in startups or other people to help you do it, you have got to self-disrupt. Otherwise, someone will come along, large corporate or startup, and do it for you. With the companies that you're investing in, you like deep tech. Why does France, why do you think France has a particular opportunity there? The amazing thing right now is, you know, when you look historically at, so deep tech can be defined in all kinds of ways, but if we're talking about uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, things around, you know, uh, photonics and optics like augmented reality, virtual reality, if we're looking at synthetic biology, industrial IoT, you know, a lot of the hardware space. Historically, when you look at successful companies, uh, for example, in the Valley, in these spaces, a tremendous amount of them are actually entrepreneurs from France, Eastern Europe, Israel, China. And what we're seeing now is while it is still true and will stay true foreseeable future that you need to scale companies through the valley in the sense of that's a lot of client potential, especially if you're selling 
to digital companies or other big companies. So the fact that you probably need to at least have a sales office there is not going to go away. But the reality that you need to start your company in the U.S. or flip it to the U.S. in order to raise money, in order to scale this company, that is no longer true. The idea that a French entrepreneur needs to move to the Valley to start their company or scale it in many, many, many of the cases, if not most of them now, there is a viable way to stay here and make that happen. And so one of the reasons that I, you know, it's a mixture of all kinds of things. If we're talking about the deep tech side, so there's the French, why the French ecosystem is interesting. Maybe we can talk about that later. If we talk specifically about deep tech, deep tech requires a substantial amount of education, usually not to belittle the entrepreneurship behind something like a Facebook or an Uber, but you don't have to have a highly technical education to have that idea and build the company that builds it. These are technical resources. These are commodities that you can align to build something. In deep tech, you can't even imagine the problem that you want to solve unless you understand the technologies that will solve it. It's very difficult to come up with amazing AI solutions or VRAR, synthetic biology. Oh, that's a perfect one. It's not just a question of being able to create the solution. You probably can't even identify the problem in any real coherent, deep way if you don't have that education. Why is that important? Well, in France, in general, I would say you can get a PhD for about the price of the first year of my private engineering bachelor's degree in the United States. And these are incredible educations. Historically, you know, the math education in France is one of the best in the world. Math gives you algorithms. Algorithms gives you things like AI, machine learning, IoT, synthetic biology. This is where it all comes from. So that's the France piece. The Eastern European piece is kind of a holdover from the Soviet Union where they invested a tremendous amount of educational, you know, they created these kind of educational hubs and centers in different countries around cybersecurity and networking and different areas around programming. And what has happened is, you know, that's been quite a while since that doesn't exist in terms of the Soviet Union. But what you see is that has continued and you see these incredibly deep knowledge bases around programming and development and deep tech in Eastern Europe. And so Poland, Ukraine, Czechia, these kind of places, just amazing amounts of very, very smart, highly educated people building stuff. So France, Eastern Europe, Israel, this is where deep tech is being, is where the education is being created in a lot of ways. Now they get that education. They don't need to go to the U.S. to start that company necessarily. And so as more funds are willing to invest into these ecosystems, as more examples of startups scaling in these ecosystems and achieving important valuations and exits happen. This cycle is just going to build more and more to where you have to scale a company globally, but there's no reason to say that you can't build it where it makes sense to build it because of access to amazing developers or other resources. So that's why deep tech is very, very interesting for me in Europe, but Israel and Southeast Asia, I think are also incredibly important in that for other reasons. But this is why France, the other day, I was having a similar discussion, and it was about GAFA and Batch and, and the whole issue of maybe France not competing with the Googles and the Tencents and the uh, Apples and Amazons and Facebooks and Alibabas and, and Xiaomi's and all these different companies. And my answer was, well, I don't think you probably will be able to because that hasn't been where France has necessarily been strong. But the next wave of companies that are in everything deep tech, you're going to own this, hopefully. The potential is there because the resources are there. The difference is whether or not everything aligns and these people build the companies in France or they, for some reason, go somewhere else. But there's no reason that a killer AI company in two years needs to be in the Valley versus having launched in Paris. Today, that is not the case. And it's just going to become even more the case. So, no, I'm very bullish because the resources are here. The brains that are behind deep tech are in Europe. 
France is playing the long game. It was Napoleon that had the idea. We're playing the long game and going with math. Yes. This is, I mean, that's creative, I think, actually. So what do you think of the scene here, of the deep tech scene in France? I think what's interesting is that there's several issues. So a lot of deep tech is not as sexy as consumer tech. So entrepreneurs may have shied away from that historically. But I also think one of the main problems you have is is sometimes... Well, so most deep tech comes out of research and development, whether it's university-based or corporate-based or whatever, but it's you're solving very big problems without necessarily thinking about a commercial solution to them. So sometimes you've, in, historically, there's been a, a hard time bridging this R&D to an actual commercial application, because if it's funded by the university just to solve a problem, hey, let's go figure out how this works. That's great. But then you have to turn that into a company at some point if you want it to, to scale in, in that way. But that hasn't necessarily been, it's just been fundamental research. So I think that that's a big piece of why maybe that hasn't scaled up until now in some of these ways. But what we're seeing now is, you know, thanks to things like uh, Xavier Duporte's uh, Hello Tomorrow conference, for example, it's a deep tech conference based in Paris. You know, we are now showcasing entrepreneurs that are scientists, you know, and I do this so at CES in Las Vegas, where the French uh, startups represent uh, around a fourth, I think, this year of the startups that are present. And I take I do guided tours for a, a group of investors and influencers from the U.S. for to a around a dozen or so French startups during CES. It's always funny to go to look at some of these things and you'll go from booth to booth to booth and you'll see things like a lot of very consumer gadgety type products or things where it's the potentially great entrepreneurs building pretty cool things. And then you'll get to a French table and it'll be two PhDs working on something. And it's always a surprise, you know, for double masters or whatever. This is not always the case. And education is not Again, you can be an amazing entrepreneur and build amazing things outside of deep tech without that kind of thing. When we're talking deep tech, it's very hard, I think, to I think an entrepreneur also has to be a subject matter expert in those spaces to enough extent that you understand what you're building. And so in deep tech, that just it's always funny to see, you know, the investors and influencers that come on these and, and they meet these startups. They're always just very impressed with the high level of education that a lot of French startups will potentially have. We have a, a diploma based culture here where even if you're going to start the next Facebook or whatever that might be. You're still going to get your master's degree before you do something professionally. That's still very French culturally to get your diploma and, and because that's how you have a job. I think we're seeing also even just in B2C and in consumer, you know, platform digital type stuff, we're still seeing also very highly educated entrepreneurs versus maybe the scrappy entrepreneurs that we see in the U.S. that have much less education, but build companies based just on, you know, strength of will and sheer force. So I think you know, deep tech is... The ecosystem here is, is not just around deep tech, but in general, is it's primed to really explode. The French tech visa, if it's deployed enough to actually to really kind of move the needle on this, it means best in class entrepreneurs from around the world will realize they can come to France and leverage the amazing ecosystem that has been built here the past several years. If they can come in, then that's going to be fantastic for the scale of, of the ecosystem. But what's really even more important to me, although I think that that's incredibly important, what is most important to me is that for both French or European entrepreneurs building something in France, but also entrepreneurs from the outside coming in, what they have to be able to do is hire best in class talent. So if you want, again, long game, if you want to see a company in France that, and I see this in Singapore a lot too, where I spend about a third of my time now in Southeast Asia, it's a very similar ecosystem to France, tons of similar things being put in place, a very efficient model, but I'm seeing this, some similar problems. And that is you have to step back and say, if we want to increase employment, thanks to startup to startups, because startups are building amazing things, because the future companies are, are being built because of these initiatives we're creating. If we want to see employment because of that, that's great. But 
if you want a thousand employees to work for startup X in five years, and you want most of those to be maybe French, that's great. But that means the first 30 to 50 hires that company needs to make need to be the best people in the world at that moment in time for those specific needs. And if you do not allow a startup to hire best in class to scale itself through the first 30 to 50 employees, it will not historically become that 1,000, 2,000, 10,000 person company that does what you actually wanted it to do in the first place. So if you want to talk about immigration and how economic development can create jobs, but create jobs for local, for the citizens of a country, I respect that conversation. But you have to be aware that in order to get to that goal, you have to allow entrepreneurs to hire the best people they can find. And at any given moment in time, that may be a French person, but it may not be. And if you need to hire, if you're building a startup in France today, and for just the reasons that the way it works, your first 50 employees are there is not a single French person in there. The administration, this country has to be okay with that because that is what will get you to a company that hires hundreds, if not thousands of French people once it scales. That's how this works. It works because companies execute perfectly. And part of perfect execution for a startup is hiring the best people you can. Well, Ethan, we're so glad you could join us today. Yeah. We like to ask everybody as a way to finish up, how do you define success? How do you find success? I think for me, it's personal fulfillment. So are you doing the thing that you love to do? Back to the, you know, we talked about earlier, the fun side of startups and the fact that, you know, it, yeah, there is a lot of stress relieving things. The massage person who comes in every week to the office or whatever, that kind of, you know, silly stuff that we see sometimes. But that exists for a reason, because it, it's to deal with the fact that this is, you know, this hard kind of idea. So I think personal fulfillment has to be the first piece of this, because you're not going to put up with the rest of this unless you're doing something that just makes you happy. I don't work. I mean, people ask me, you know, you're at all these, you're constantly at events, you're constantly traveling, you, every chance, you're always looking at your phone or your iPad, uh, writing emails, whatever this kind of stuff is, you work too much. And my answer is, I mean, every now and then, yes, but I rarely feel like I'm working because I love what I get to do. So I think that's very American to say that, uh, I think, you know, and then maybe I do work too much on some level, but I also just love, I really enjoy that. And so I had to go to Lisbon, you know, for a week to go to Web Summit. And that was a very long uh, week. CES in Las Vegas will be a long week, but it was also really fun. So it's not a vacation, but it's not exactly a full week at the office either. It's hard work that is enjoyable. So personal fulfillment is the big one. I don't think that money should be the reason that you do a startup because the you're much, if you have a good education and you're smart, you're much, much more likely to make much more money getting a good consulting job or a good job in a Fortune 500 type company and working your way up the ladder. You'll make more money, most likely that way. But I do think that you need to be doing this in order to achieve financial success for the company because the financial success of the company means the company can do more things, hire more great people and do amazing things around the world, whatever that might be. You want to feed everybody in Africa, that's great. That requires money. You want to bring clean water to a third world country. You want to, whatever that happens to be, if you want to do something more on the impact side of things, that's great, but that still requires capital. You still have to be successful in the financial sense to make that work. The financial sense on the backside, the capitalist in me, you know, is going to appreciate the fact that, yeah, I take a lot of risks and I, I do work really hard. So that's a whole other discussion that will bring lots of comments, I'm sure. But I think you maybe deserve to benefit from the fact that you decided to step out and, and take those risks and work hard. But I also think that there, it should be fair. I think the employees of companies that are also taking these risks and doing these things, I think they should also have great salaries and great uh, potential for equity in the future. And I think there's a distribution level there that needs to happen. 
If you love what you're doing, then you're already successful, uh, regardless of whether or not it actually succeeds. And then if it does succeed, well, then there's potentially the typical measures of success around finance or whatever that kick in. I think if you wake up in the morning and you're like, gosh, I, I'm going to go to work now. That's successful. If you wake up in the morning, and you're like, shit, work. I'd say maybe you're not. Well, thanks so much for joining us. This was great. Great. Yeah, Thank excellent. you. Thank you. That wraps up another episode of the Radical Departures podcast. Thanks for listening. Support us on Patreon. And join us next time on Radical Departures.